Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Jacoby Ballard, author of A Queer Dharma. Jacoby explains the definition of dharma and what he means by a queer dharma. We discuss the connections between yoga and social justice, the importance of community, overcoming trauma, and learning to love yourself. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel if that is where you view this. Also, be sure to hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. Your support is truly appreciated. Jacoby Ballard is a social justice educator and yoga teacher in Salt Lake City, Utah. He leads workshops and trainings around the country on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and has consulted for Yoga Alliance, Lululemon, and Insight Meditation Society, among other organizations. As a yoga teacher with over two decades of experience, he leads weekly classes, workshops, and retreats, and teaches in yoga teacher trainings around the country. Since 2006, Jacoby has taught queer and trans yoga as a weekly class, a workshop, and a yoga retreat for LGBTQ communities, for which he received Yoga Journal's Good Karma Award in 2016. In 2008, Jacoby founded Third Root Community Health Center in Brooklyn, New York, a worker-owned cooperative wellness center operating at the intersection of healing and social justice. Jacoby currently leads the uh, Resonance Yoga Mentorship Program for yoga teachers to fill in gaps left out of many yoga teacher trainings to work intimately with mentees and help them find their gifts, niche, and calling. Jacoby has taught in gyms, schools, offices, universities, conferences, a cancer center, a recovery center, a homeless shelter, a maximum security prison, and yoga studios. Jacoby is author of A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation, which is his first book. Jacoby, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. And I apologize for my tongue getting tied there a little bit in the uh, bio. Um, I thought the coffee was coursing through, but apparently not quite yet. Um, so I wanted to say first that I love your book, uh, A Queer Dharma. Um, so congratulations on its publication. You know, I love that you open yoga and Buddhism to social justice issues and also the LGBTQ uh, community as well. You know, and I, I know that ideas of social justice are inherent in many of these teachings, but in the Western setting, they're often ignored. Totally. Right? Um, so I, I, I think you're making a very significant contribution uh, with, with the book. So thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Um, I thought that maybe the best place to begin might be to go over a definition or two. Yep. And specifically, I wanted to ask you to define what you mean by Dharma and also queer Dharma. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is often a question in the yeah. interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Dharma, uh, I'm playing with the word a little bit in the title, um, coming from both a Buddhist background and a yoga background. So uh, in Buddhism, Dharma means the truth, the way things are, the teachings as a whole. Um, and in Sanskrit, it means uh one's calling or one's duty. It's said in the Bhagavad Gita that it's um, more important to follow your own dharma imperfectly than to follow someone else's dharma uh, perfectly. Um, so I'm working with both of those. Um, and then and then a queer dharma, meaning like a bizarre calling, a radical calling, a calling of anti-oppression in the deepest way and as a path. Um, uh, the teachings of, of queerness um, as a contribution. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's good. I, I, I think that the, I like this idea of the queerness in so many different ways and it, uh, you know, not just personally, um, but in the sense of 
countering this otherizing um, that is inherent, I think, in many Western approaches to both yoga and uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, so uh, I, I absolutely love that. And along those lines, um, one of the things is you mentioned that identifying as queer is a political uh, label uh, rather than just personal identity. Um, and that's something I also appreciate it. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit, um, a little bit more? I think you've already said a little bit about it, but yeah. uh, what is the political aspect? Mm. Well, for me, it's, it points to the difference between LGBTQ and the word queer and the word queer born out of Queer Nation, which was mm. a social justice project, right, in New York City. Um, and before that, you know, queer people were, were labeled as queer as um, as uh, dismissal and as a, a weapon, um, and queer nation reclaimed that, right? Mm -hmm. Like so many different communities reclaim words that are hurled mm -hmm. against us, um, because there's, we recognize there's power there and we're just going to take right. that power and flip right. it back. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and then queer, queerness, you know, when I first began identifying as queer in my early twenties, um, what really compelled me was the political commitment that it's a commitment mm -hmm. to, anti-oppression and liberation for all peoples, which also, you know, I was a little baby yogi at the time too. And that was what I was studying on my yoga mat too, is that we're, we're all connected and, and um, our liberation is bound up in one another's. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it's not about just like my lifestyle or who I love or who I sleep with or um, the community that I keep close. Uh, but how I live my life and how I make choices in every given way um, and an understanding of who's going to be impacted by those choices. And which is not, um, I know that I can't be pure, like in a capitalist white supremacist system, right. there's no way that I can always be anti-capitalist and I can always mm -hmm. be anti-racist. Um, mm -hmm. And I can work against that as often as possible. And for me, that's what queerness is. Okay. Wonderful. And I, I think that, um, there's a lot to dig in here, especially with the ideas of capitalism and uh, being embedded in a capitalist system, but working against a, a capitalist system. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was to maybe discuss yoga and capitalism. And I know this is also deeply connected to colonialism as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Because our resources can come from right. um, uh, places that we colonize, <laughs> right, whether that's right. our own country um, or uh, abroad. Right. right. Um, yeah, I, I've anti-capitalism was with the first politics I entered into, and um, I was practicing yoga at the same time. And as I continued practicing yoga, I couldn't not see. Um, the yoga industry and and at the same time uh you know i was deeply studying the yoga philosophy mm. which the very first practice the yamas i feel like are deeply anti-capitalist mm -hmm. it's about kindness and harmlessness mm -hmm. it's about truthfulness and integrity it's about um non-stealing and even generosity um which are all the antithesis of capitalism. Capitalism is all about taking everything and, and, and telling lies and generating as much profit as possible, um, regardless of who it's going to harm. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of been this like itch under my skin for like decades of uh, how yoga, um, you know, can be can be used to propel capitalism. It's a it's a tool. And so any tool can be used um, for connection or separation, for harm or for healing. Um, and so we have corporate CEOs learning yoga or learning meditation or, or mindfulness in order to be able to focus more to make more profits. We also have the army and, and various militaries around the world learning mindfulness as a, um, a training of the mind so that they can focus and be more effective at war, which is about killing and winning right. and whatever it takes. Um, 
uh, yeah, so I, 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 that chapter on yoga and capitalism was one of the first ones I wrote because I was just like, I have so much to say about it. And there's been so few outlets. There's so many of the yoga studios and yoga industry, you know, doesn't want to hear it because there's money to be made. And um, I think it's so important to honor for me as a white person practicing this Indian and South Asian tradition um, to honor the whole of the teachings. I have to practice the philosophy mm. and, um, and how interesting is it that like, we're just extracting the postures or sometimes the breaths or sometimes the meditation, forgetting the ethical practices, forgetting all these other lists about clarity and, and wisdom and connection, um, our inherent connection with all beings um, in the service of capitalism, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I think that, you know, I teach yoga philosophy in some of my religious studies courses. And I always tell students that yoga is not just about being bendy, you know, that they're, you know, it's a, the, and, and it's it, eight, I don't want to say eightfold path. I'm teaching Buddhism tonight, but it's the Ashtanga system, right? The eight limbs. Uh, you know, yeah. The eight limbs. Right. Um, and exactly what you said that the ethical approach that is fundamental to it. It's absolutely yeah. fundamental and it's been co-opted. And would you say that this is a kind of spiritual bypassing for the West where there is this focus on just the exercise, um, but everything else is ignored? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's spiritual bypass. It's cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. It's extracting one part of this, this entire system. That's not about like going to your mat for an hour, even every day. It's about every hour of your life and how you're living and all the choices that you're that you're making um and you know that that the depth of inquiry that yoga really invites us into is really inconvenient to to many people especially those um who are in power and like don't want to grapple with with the problems of you know of white supremacy or or capitalism um, or patriarchy yeah, I don't think that I have ever been to a yoga class where any of the yamas have been taught. Oh, no. Yeah, never. That's uh, terrible. It's always, you know, well, let, let's let's do a few ohms <laughs> and they just leave it at that. Wow. Um, and so I agreed that in the book where you said, you know, this has to be part of it. This has to be a part of it. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned the mindfulness. I was going to ask you about that as well. But another question that I wanted to hit you up with here is in yoga and in the Indian traditions, often there's this focus on liberation versus Western ideas of salvation. And I was wondering if, bear with me a second, I'm trying to figure out exactly how I want to ask this question. Um, do you see liberation being included in yoga classes uh, or is the focus on this kind of leading individuals to individual enlightenment? I'd say it depends on who's teaching and mm -hmm. what the value of the practice space is. You know, there's now so many um, spaces online and physically that are um, embedded in communities of color or queer communities mm -hmm. um, where I think it's there's an affinity for the depths of the teachings because mm -hmm. out of our lived experience, we know that that's the truth. Right. And again, that's a, one of the darn definitions of dharma is the truth and we've just known that um not necessarily through studying but just through living through systems of oppression um but yeah it's often it's often forgotten it's often you know very asana centered mm -hmm. and um 
when I, whenever I teach asana to, to counter that kind of common practice, I always teach philosophies. Mm. Um, I'm always going through the various lists in both yoga and Buddhism. And, um, you know, I can't control what yoga is broadly um, right. in this country, but I can make a contribution to it. And I can make sure that my students like know in and out, in and out the, the yamas and mm -hmm. um, uh, are invested in, in those those practices or the niyamas or mm -hmm. um, the Brahma Viharas as I write about in the, the first right, part of the book. Right, right. Yeah. And the Brahma Viharas, those are the four immeasurables in Buddhism. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, just for the audience, anyone who may not be familiar, what are those? Yeah. Uh, well, Brahma Vihara means um, sacred abode, uh, a dwelling place to wisely locate your heart. Um, so it includes loving kindness, this overarching um, uh, welcoming and care for all beings and compassion, which is has to do with interacting with suffering and directing our attention and our generosity in the midst of suffering. Uh, sympathetic joy, which is interacting with joy and success and pleasure in a skillful way, which means being unattached to it, knowing that um, it's going to end like all things. And then equanimity, this practice of um, this balancing practice of accepting things as they are rather than how we might like them to be and understanding that everyone's liberation is up to themselves, mm -hmm. right? Like I can't free you right. actually, that's right. your business. I right. can like open all the doors and I can love the hell out of you, but um, it's your business. <laughs> Right. And that seems to me to be one of the primary differences between liberation and salvation, because liberation is up to the individual, but salvation seems to imply that someone has to save you in a sense. Yeah, that's a good point. I also think, you know, and I, I just jotted down those words uh, a minute ago when you, when you brought them up. And I think salvation comes from this idea that like we're inherently evil and we're mm. inherently flawed, whereas right. liberation and the, both Buddhism and yoga, part of what I love about them is they have this basic premise that we're basically good. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if I'm basically good, that means you're basically good. And that means, you know, Right. The, the unhoused person on the street is basically good. It means the neighbor who might be abusing his partner, there's still a goodness in there that I can right. try to find. Right. Yeah. And I think that's very powerful. And I have often wondered about that, you know, in a Western, especially Christian centric point of view, we are seen as inherently bad. And I always wonder what would the world be like if instead of that, we saw everyone as inherently good, flawed for sure, but good at essence. Totally. I wonder that too. I have a three-year-old and somehow in the last couple of weeks at school and preschool, he got this idea of um, labeling people as bad. I don't know if like the teacher uh -huh. used that or another kid used that or something. And so he brings that home and he'll be like, Papa, you are bad. <laughs> And we always say, you know, there's actually, there's no bad people. That's a myth. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's bad behavior. There's unskillful. There's harmful behavior right. that right. we all learn from somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's not our natural way of being. Um, but if I don't believe that there's anyone that's bad, then like I remain connected to them and I can't mm -hmm. give up on their goodness. Right. Right. And it seems like that is so important. And whenever we identify people as bad, I think it feeds into this sort of otherizing, you know, that they're bad, but we're good. Right. And what marks them as bad, right? It's often right. like the values of those in power and, right. and everything else that's not that is, is bad because if we valued it, that would be a threat and that would, that would threaten the whole uh, hierarchy. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, one of the, things that is also runs through your book. And I think that this is so important is putting it into alignment of this conversation about not seeing people as bad. We are all traumatized. Yeah. And it's this idea that we have to heal this. And you even note that the source of our trauma is injustice and oppression and 
capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been studying my grandmother's hands with a, a group of anti-racist white folks. And, you know, one of the uh, invitations of Resma Menachem in that book for white people is where white supremacy comes from is from um, the violence of Europe where we were attacking each other and mm-hmm. we didn't ever heal that trauma. And then some people, you know, immigrated to the US, sometimes the most like disposable people of Europe um, are the ones to, to come to the US and then hurt people, hurt people, right? So right. if we don't heal the trauma, then like we need someone else to mark as the other, to mark as bad, to um, have power over. And that became Native people and Black people and then Latinx people and really anyone um, yeah. in order to maintain white supremacy. Yeah, I think the trauma runs very deep. I think it runs yeah. very deep. I know that last summer uh, someone brought up and this is the first time I really started thinking about it very deeply uh, was, you know, going back to Europe and the, and I don't want to bash Christianity here, but the Christian conquests mm-hmm. of, and you know, the European indigenous traditions and the sort of the wholesale slaughter. Yeah. And now people seem to be wondering about trying to find a way to reconnect, mm-hmm. um, not just with each other, but with some kind of spirit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's a deep, deep damage there. It's a soul wound, right? Yeah. yeah. That we need to claim, like, attend to, not, no longer ignore and sweep under right. the carpet. Um, right. Because as long as we do that, we'll keep harming other people. Mm-hmm. Right. And part of the work that you do is, you know, it's centered on the Yamas and the, uh, the, the, the Brahma Viharas. Um, and one of the virtues, I'm just going to call them virtues here for a moment, but is forgiveness. And I liked that you wrote that one of the aspects of forgiveness is that we have to also develop forgiveness towards the first noble truth. Uh And I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit. Yeah. I didn't come up with that. That's from my teacher, Larry Gang. And um, it was his contribution to the forgiveness practice of Buddhism in the West. And um it's a, it's a recognition that suffering exists, that, that hmm. uh, the Buddha said that, that all beings are going to experience suffering. It's inevitable. Um, and so, you know, it, uh, there's so many times when something happens, when there's, you know, a fire and um, houses are burnt or there's gun violence or whatever. And the, we can tend to say, why me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the first noble truth points us to like, this is an inevitable, like this is the form it took. And there may have been like unskillful policies or practices that led to the fire that led to gun violence, of course, that were preventable, but suffering, we can't live a life that's free from suffering. It's, it's impossible. Um, and so it allows us then to reckon with the, the presence of pain and injustice in, in this world and tend to it, not ignore it, repress it, deny it, sweep it under the carpet. And if we can tend to it, then we can heal it, right? Like mm-hmm. if we go to the wound, we can find the wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And don't you say that at one point in the book that your um, greatest gift comes from your greatest wound? Yeah. Yeah. That comes out of the organization off the mat into the world but it's been a, a teaching that I uh, struggled with at first mm-hmm. because it, um, in some ways I was afraid that it was, um, I don't know, like validating the wound that mm-hmm. like, oh, there's a great gift here. Don't worry, Jacoby, about transphobia. <laughs> um, but what I came to see is like, no, it's that something touches my heart deeply and that teaches me what I really, really care about and what's most important in this life. And that leads me to love. Yeah. Yeah. And the love is both for all other beings, 
but also for oneself. Yeah. And that also seems to be a very profound theme in your book. And it's something that kind of keeps coming up for me recently um, of this idea of self-acceptance and the importance of learning to love ourselves. And you wrote that learning to love yourself is a political act. Uh-huh. Why, why is that? Well, I think so many of us internalize oppression, right? Any, anyone who's not at the, in the position of power internalizes the ways that um, those in power teach us through media, through um, music, through uh, news, um, uh, what's wrong with us. And then we, you know, can't help but swallow some of that at least. And, you know, I think of Stephen Biko who said the greatest tool of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. So if they can get in our minds, then they make us reproduce the system of oppression and then they don't have to do as much work. Right. right? And so loving ourselves, is rejecting that notion that um, I'm less than human, that I'm not mm-hmm. worthy, that right. I'm not deserving of basic rights, of um, survival, of thriving mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that that's what anyone who owned slaves was afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. Because if, um, if, if they know that they are inherently free, then they're going to claim their freedom. They're going to, they're going to take that. Um, anyone who's, who's in that position. Um, and then, you know, I think it's also a political act for those who hold power because, um, in order to be in that power holding position, there's such a narrow set of characteristics, right? I've, I've worked with, um, with men in a, in a, workshop, a project called Challenging Male Supremacy Project. And I, up until that point, I didn't really, I hadn't really seen the vulnerability of cisgender men who are raised as boys and, you know, taught that like, they can't walk in a certain way. They can't Mm -hmm. like certain instruments. There's only some sports to play and other sports are more feminine. There's only some ways to talk or not. And they're like, there's this constant way of like proving yourself as like worthy of being in the, in the position of power. Um, And so if, if those in power, if white people, if men, if, if straight people knew that, there's nothing to prove that you're basically good, then, <laughs> then you don't need someone to be under you. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I wondered about that quite a bit. I mean, it's, you know, I interviewed someone recently who she took it as an opportunity on the, on the interview to come out as a trans woman. And one of the things that she had said, because she had this incredible history in terms of her spiritual background. And she had said that she always felt broken and wrong, I think. And I related to that as a gay man, having that feeling for so much of my life that, you know, there's just something wrong about me. There's something broken. I need fixed. And and I, and I saw that in your book as well, that, you know, there's a, that idea. And I think it goes back to this notion that our greatest wound is also our greatest gift that mm-hmm. we were able to take that and become better people and mm-hmm. use it to offer a gift to the world. And I think that we often forget that, you know, everyone hurts. So even straight white guys who have lives of privilege are still harmed by patriarchy. They're still harmed by this system that they're supporting. Yeah. That they benefit from. Yeah. There's, there's, we're still um, disempowered by. Yeah. Yeah. How would you recommend people to open up conversations with people who are benefiting who what we might consider as privileged and i know that there's a lot of intersection you know yeah. uh with privilege it's not just a black and white thing yeah. but sometimes opening up these conversations can be very difficult yeah 
Um, I mean, I think there has to be a relationship built over time mm. and then we can get closer and closer to the vulnerability. Um, and perhaps even asking questions that uh, someone in power didn't know to even ask of themselves. Yeah. I think yeah. that's one of the gifts of, of living on the margin is that there's a really good view <laughs> yeah, yeah. from the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it doesn't work to just point out someone's privilege you know, because they just get defensive. It seems, you know, I mean, you can recognize it and um, yeah, I think, it's invisibilized by those that are holding power. And so it, it uh, I've had so many, you know, white people or, or, or men to um, really hold on to their suffering, you know, mm -hmm. but like, uh, yeah, I'm white, but I, I was raised poor or I'm Jewish or right. I'm, whatever it is. Um, yeah, but I'm gay, mm -hmm. um, which is a deflection that doesn't mm -hmm. allow them to grapple with the ways that they benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, part of that is just the human nervous system and wanting to move away from suffering. Mm -hmm. And if you're telling me that I benefit then and others are suffering from the system, then I have to look at the suffering and that's mm -hmm. uncomfortable and yeah. really hard, especially if, whereas, you know, communities of color always have to look at the, the suffering of yeah, white yeah. supremacy. Right. Trans folk always have to look at the, the suffering of transphobia. Right. Um, but, uh, I think that's where alliance comes in, right? That like, we need one another. We need to wake up together so that all of us in our various positions can leverage our power um, in order to overthrow the system, recognizing that it's not working for anyone. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I think with what you were just saying, it reminds me of something else that's really important in Buddhism. And you also discussed this, but it's the importance of community mm -hmm. of having a sangha yeah um and how is it that community you know what's the strength of the communities how, how does this help us um towards our liberation and uh liberation individually but also collectively mm. We all have different propensities toward different practices and, you know, embody different qualities. And if we bring that all into one room or a Zoom room together, mm. um, then we can benefit from one another's spiritual goodness, right? If, um, if you're more generous than me, then it actually benefits me to be in relationship with you because my own generosity is inspired by yours. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we can multiply that by, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of people, um, in Sangha. And then also, you know, in any close human relationship, there's, there's suffering, there's, um, uh, mm -hmm. difficulty arises. And so then we have an opportunity to turn towards the teachings in the midst of that suffering and like examine ourselves. What's my part in this? Um, examine one another's pain what did i what what is real for you that i didn't know about um how do i need to educate myself to understand your life and your background um, and your people even better um and then in that process uh, you know uh, being there for one another's liberation um the collective liberation is so much stronger mm. um I'm, I'm teaching about Sangha this week in my, in my drop-in classes. And um, in preparation, I was referencing one of my favorite books right now, Mia Birdsong's um, How We Show Up. Mm -hmm. And in it, she talks about um, how the community is built by people on the margins that are, that are targeted by systems of oppression um, are the most powerful communities because we really need each other. We really, you know, gay people, our families often abandon us, so we need one another. Um, black people are, you know, under constant attack and have been for, for centuries, um, in this country and, and other countries. And, and so they band together and, and, and lean into each other and, you know, often consider family as so much broader than a nuclear blood family. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's because together, like when we're banded together, we're, it's more difficult to break us. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I, I can definitely relate to that as well. Um, my true family is not my blood family, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that, you know, being in community also allows us to experience joy that we wouldn't necessarily experience. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, in an earlier draft of my book, I had a whole chapter that was a a love letter to queer and trans communities. Um, And then my editor had me fold that into the joy chapter, Uh, which uh, made a lot of sense. Um, And it was so, uh, so fun to write it because, you know, um, I think we can take for granted what is, what is beautiful, especially amongst uh, communities that are, that are targeted and marginalized. And, you know, because they teach us the systems of power teach us that we are broken and something's inherently wrong. But, um, you know, I'm so, I'm so grateful for being a queer person. Mm. There's, there's, uh, such vibrancy and brilliance. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose otherwise. Yeah. 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 It's, you go through this process, I think of going from that sort of self-loathing and, um, not accepting yourself to finding great joy in it and recognizing again, that, that gift that yeah. it provides. Yeah. I mean, depending on how you're raised, uh, we're yeah. trying to raise our little one with like a plethora of options so that like, however he decides to be is, and, and who knows if he'll stay a cisgender boy, like we're open right. to right. any possibility of who he may become. And we're presenting that in the, the, um, the films that we watch, the music we, we sing, the, mm-hmm. the um, books that he reads, and even, you know, the people that surround him in community, um, so that he knows, like, there's no one right way. And that mm-hmm. gives him incredible room to find what is his pathway, though? What yeah. is his passion? Yeah. yeah, to be authentically himself. Yeah. 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 So many of us didn't have that opportunity and, you know, we're like so boxed in by these expectations that we literally had to run away to find room to like, look at like how, who am I really? Right. Right. When I don't have this fire breathing down my neck, who am I? Yeah. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, um, you come from a very small town in Colorado Yeah. and I, I consider Colorado home. Uh, and, uh, but when I read that, I, I'm like, oh, I understand. (laughs) 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 Uh, Because I know how some of these very small towns in Colorado can be, um, and how hard it must've been to uh, live in that situation. You know, in some ways it's, it's beautiful. And it taught me so much about community because, you know, you have to, in a small town, just like in a small queer community, you have to work shit out yeah. or you just have to be with the like division that's like yeah. encrusted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can't get, you can't get away. You can't, there's, there's not always breathing room, especially if you're a, a targeted person, um, mm. because you're going to see, you know, your bully at the supermarket or the coffee shop yeah. or the one restaurant in town, or you're going to yeah. pass them on the street. So you can't avoid each other. Um, and, and yeah, if you don't, if you don't fit what is expected of people and children in that, in that town, um, then it's, you're constantly faced with that, not fitting in. It's not, right. it's very different. I, I lived in New York city for a decade right. and, you know, in New York city, the queer community even is so vast that like, right. if you have a breakup in one corner, you can go find another relationship <laughs> in another corner and never have to see the person again, necessarily. Yeah. Um, but in a, in a small town, there's not, there's not that room. And, you know, your, your yeah. teachers have known you like your whole life and your classmates, you know, went to kindergarten with you or saw you potty train or, you know, yeah. just like whoever you've been, like the totality of, of it adds up. And then, you know, if you're conceived of someone as like not normal, um, such as I was, I wasn't like even out to myself as, as mm-hmm. queer um, throughout my years of, of living in my small town. Um, but others saw something different in me yeah. and then, and then I was attacked yeah. for that. Yeah. And it's, uh, that gets you back to the self-acceptance and, and the, the importance of it. And is, I imagine I already know the answer to this question, but this, uh, this experience, is this what led you to yoga and Buddhism? 
Well, I started meditating my senior year of high school, kind of out of the blue. I was on a in, in an organization called Student Empowerment that was invested in getting students more involved in the in our education, and uh, every year Student Empowerment would take on a new project of something to focus on. So one year it was like teacher evaluations, and then uh, my senior year it was senior projects to pilot senior projects. So just kind of out of nowhere, I chose meditation. Mm. Um, and at that time, my senior year, I had been being bullied since seventh grade. Um, and I was also a three sport athlete. So I was both like a target and a leader at the okay. same time. And um, two things meditation really gave me that year was that it taught me incredible focus and I became an unstoppable free throw uh, shooter so that I was the person that the team called upon and wanted fouled at the end of the game because I was going to nail the shot because I had trained my mind, you know, every day to focus on a single pointed thing. Um, and then it also taught me that there's something inside here that can't be assaulted, that can't be taunted, that can't um, ever be taken away. Um, and that was, that literally saved my life. And it seems like that, once you get to that point of loving yourself, then you can start loving others. I mean, I think it can be a both and I think, yeah. you know, sometimes other people, especially um, if we're, if we have a lot of internalized oppression or um, negative self-talk um, that others can love ourselves, love us into our goodness, uh, you know, okay. which is again, yeah. like part of the value of Sangha. Mm -hmm. Um I've been in so many spaces where someone is like just uh, covered in shame and mm. other people are just like seeing their goodness and then sticking yeah. by them through the like tears and the shakes and the, you know, the self-loathing. Um, and so in that, you know, people are loving that person who can't love themselves, but then also there's an interdependence that's kind of automatic in that. And they see like, oh, my sense of self is also dependent on community and who I surround myself by. And um, so then can I surround myself with people that love me actually, and have the closest circles, not people that are judging me or shaming me or, um, or blaming me for something. I can deal with that further out, but those that I interact with every day or that see me come out of the shower or who I share a bed with, um, can I really invest in relationships that are as wholesome as possible? out of self-love and also knowing that like I'm giving back to that person too, mm -hmm. that it's reciprocal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's quite beautiful. And you know, I think the opposite <laughs> of all of this is anger, <laughs> right? I'm trying to find, uh, uh, I have it written down here somewhere. Um, uh, what you wrote about anger. Um, and, uh, you had a very uh, specific phrase I was trying to think of. Um, oh, what was it? Um, well, in general, it's not coming. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you can think of it, uh, you can you can help me. Uh, I, I guess in general, it's that anger comes from hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, is that about right? From a hurt, fear, and exhaustion. And yeah. underneath anger is a broken heart. That's it. Yeah, that's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> that yes, underneath anger is a broken heart. Um, I thought that was quite profound, and, and and I think it's true. And that gets back to this idea that what we need is healing. We have a lot of yeah. broken-hearted people. Yeah, yeah, and instead, so often, right? We like. Uh, we're afraid of the, the person who's angry or we uh, stereotype them, the angry black woman or the angry black man yeah, or yeah. the angry queer person, mm -hmm. uh, the angry woman, the hysterical yeah. woman, right? But but that is evasion of what's really at the heart, which which is, is a broken heart. So instead, when we see someone angry, can we go towards and try to find our way in to the vulnerability? which takes a lot of patience, a lot of trust building, and is um, is not necessarily going to move on your own timeline. But mm -hmm. sticking it out is so rewarding. Um, because if we can hold each other in, in pain, um, then we can find a way out of pain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What about 
people who, especially, I don't think I have too many of them as listeners, but I always want to ask this anyway. Um, I know that there's an issue with things like uh, with the LGBTQ community, uh, you know, with bullying and suicide and finding community is so important. And I, I think that with the conversation, it is essential to bring this up for anyone who may be listening, who's in that space. How can someone find the others? You know, how can they find their community? It's so available now. I've, um, a number of parents of queer kids have gravitated to my work even before the book, but now the book just makes it more widely mm -hmm. available. And um, so they always, they often ask me um, the same question and because they're protective of their kids and they know the suicide rates and they know the risk if their kid is trans um, and they see, you know, how their peers or school policies are enacted against them. Um, uh queer TikTok is pretty amazing you know we can find um queer leaders who have come from a place of shame and now exude incredible love for themselves and others such as like i think of billy porter or mm -hmm. jonathan van ness or Leverett cox mm -hmm. right um all who experienced immense immense trauma and have become these um you know out of the depths of their heart um become these really incredible beings so i think um putting putting in touch people with their their own community whether that's through books through social media through like physically bringing them to the gsa to the local queer center to um a local queer organization's event where they can see people who are like them and also people who are like them that are happy Mm, yeah, right? that are yeah. living beautiful, amazing, yeah. brilliant lives and are successful at what we do. Um, and even like, you know, placing pictures I've, I've had on my right now, right in front of me, I have Marsha P. Johnson mm. on the wall just to remind myself of like, uh, of our, our goodness and, and yeah. placing that on our altar. Um, even in, especially in moments when we um, are lost or um immersed in shame to to know like someone else was in this too and they mm -hmm. found a way out and if they yeah. found a way out i can find a way out i can survive this yeah and because i'm old um <laughs> I, I can um attest to what you just said that what really helped me a lot uh just personally is more positive portrayal of the lgbt community in mass media totally you know where i'm like hey i'm actually okay <laughs> uh-huh totally because there's this idea of of yeah being being broken or wrong and yeah. that, like you're you're never going to be happy then. right but right. that's man that's the opposite of the truth i feel like those of us that are targeted by systems of oppression actually have a better sense of who we are and what happiness really is and what brings right. happiness and what does not, yeah. what will never bring us happiness. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I also appreciated in your book in terms of community is that even beyond LGBTQ, you're making a point of bringing, uh, connecting with communities of color and other yeah. oppressed communities as well. Yeah, I mean, that's been my work in social justice for a really long time. And so I'm always looking to the leadership of, um, of social movement leaders who are often, you know, don't have my lightness of skin yeah. or or even my, my gender. And um, just knowing, again, that those on the margins have incredible wisdom and insight and vision. And so... Um, can we intentionally look to the margins rather, rather than just like waiting for them to, to surface eventually? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and those are my comrades in, in struggle, you know, in, in yoga trainings so often, you know, um, there's, there's very few queer people, usually no trans people at all. And um, I've had the experience so many times that the women of color in the room are my greatest allies. And so, mm -hmm just like people of color when they show up they look you know scan the room for the melanin i also do just because i know like we've we've been through it in similar ways and there's a 
greater possibility that we're going to show up for each other than than the other folks who it's just going to be more effort. Not that I'm giving up on them, but um, I've just had experience of, of, of solidarity amongst um, folks who are facing other kinds of oppression that I'm not and offering solidarity to them as well. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to anger, um, while we are surrounded by a lot of anger, you also noted that anger is important. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I've known that since the beginning of my social justice work. And I think anyone who enters social justice work, that's, it's a, like a developmental phase that we go through is to be mm. pissed at first. <laughs> <laughs> like, how can this be happening? This is awful. My community is being destroyed. This land, the sacred land is being destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm being displaced from 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 my sacred land um, that my people have lived on for generations. Um, uh, yeah. So if, if it, anger points us towards what's most important, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's such value and wisdom in that. Um, and um, at the same time, uh, the human nervous system is wired such that we get really scared in the face mm-hmm. of other people's anger. Um, and so I know for myself, it's a it's a Buddhist practice of right speech to to not speak in anger, not because mm-hmm. anger is wrong, but because what I'm saying is not going to land in your heart mind um, if I'm speaking it in anger. Whereas right. if I'm if I'm if if I can get my nervous system settled enough to speak in a tone like this, to be smiling, to have a softer um, embodied expression, you're going to hear me better. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. not to say that, you know, if if you're angry about, you know, systems of oppression or the ways that your community has been targeted for generations, that that's wrong. Right. Um, but more, we need to learn how to be skillful with our, mm-hmm. with our anger. Um, yeah. And I, I see it as like um, a beautiful kind of protection of the wisdom of my anger if I let it move through my body mm-hmm. and then eventually turn back and be like, hey... We have a conversation about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always like to point out that according to Aristotle, righteous indignation is a virtue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you know, we can't just scream at people. You know, and so I like that approach of, you know, being skillful in the way that we approach these things. Um, And. Something else that I think is really interesting about your work, and this is something that perhaps is also a challenge for uh, people in neoliberal Western society, is this embodiedness. Yeah, I, part of the um, yeah Western philosophical system is is yeah. to be disembodied, yeah, um, or to see the body as gross or mm-hmm. bad or evil um but there's such wisdom in the body Mm -hmm. right and we if we cut ourselves off from our from our bodies we cut ourselves off from our wisdom yeah well and i also like and you've kind of mentioned this a few times the um the the nervous system that the breathing exercises and meditation can actually change the brain Mm mm-hmm yeah, my studies of neurobiology and trauma have um, really allowed me to come out of any ideas of shame or blame, but to just like understand, um, you know, if someone else is in their anger, I can't reason with them. It's just like right. we're 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 talking apples and oranges, and and, right. and um, they're going to be frust- even more frustrated if I'm trying mm-hmm. to reason, and I'm going to get nowhere. And then it's and it's. Um, but if we can understand how the human nervous system works, then um, it depersonalizes someone's mm. behavior. It's just like, oh, look, you're human. Yeah. Your body is doing what human bodies do. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna. I understand that it's gonna take about this long for you to get to a different <laughs> place <laughs> and not feel threatened. Yeah. Um, or you know, I'm gonna know that you're turning away from um, the violence that we see in our society because your human nervous system is 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 wired to turn away from pain mm, yeah we all want to turn away from pain it doesn't serve us in the long term but it's it absolutely serves our survival to to mm. run away from the tiger sure that's all you're doing yeah yeah 
Yeah. And it seems like that, you know, we're wired this way, but at the same time, there's like almost like this danger of getting stuck in that wiring. We need to try to find ways of rewiring so that we can advance as a species. Right. Right. And we, so that we can be, see clearly like what is a threat and like, what is a snake and what is just a stick on the path? Yeah. 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 And learn that snakes also have their values. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I just mean in terms of like our fear and our misperception. Yeah. No, no. I, I only say that because I have kind of changed my relationship with snakes. Uh, I used to be one of those people where it's like, no, keep them away, keep them away. Um, and one of my spiritual practices is I hike every week and I go to a Canyon, uh, that's adjacent to, uh, NASA's, uh, jet propulsion lab. And one of the reasons I chose to go there was because I had a student say, oh, there's no snakes you're never going to encounter a snake. And then I encountered snakes, uh, rattlesnakes. And uh, I have learned to appreciate the snake uh, uh-huh. and respect the snake. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And last year I didn't see any snakes and I missed them. It was weird. Mm. Um, uh, there's a question that I find myself asking my guests and Uh, I haven't asked everyone. I think I may start asking everyone this question. Uh, So I'm going to ask you, um, are you hopeful? I am. Why? I believe just as Martin Luther King Jr. said, and whoever he was quoting, um, that the universe bends towards justice. Mm. Um, And... I do, I, I do see progress and also I see backlash to progress, right? That there's like two steps forward, maybe a step or a step and a half or two steps back sometimes. Um, But um, I think more is being revealed and um, we're having to reckon with what how our society is built and what, um, who it's built for. And, uh, just number wise, it, that is going to be overthrown. Mm. Um, and I also, as a social justice activist, believe in the power of the people. And, you know, just as I've shouted in the streets since I was 20, 20 years old, the power of the people don't stop. Um, that, you know, if we don't, achieve the progress that I want to see in my lifetime, the next generation is going to take up the torch. Mm-hmm. Um, Angela Davis says, you know, what she, she doesn't expect full liberation in her lifetime, but she would like to shift the terrain of struggle. Yeah. Um, that, so to perhaps in this lifetime, we can defund the police and then perhaps in the next lifetime, you know, continue that work, whatever comes next to like um, keep moving towards a society that values everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, uh, it reminds me of a statement. I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something about the wisdom of planting trees, even if you know that you're not going to benefit from the shade. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Totally. And, and I think the yogic teachings and the Buddhist teachings also right in the Bhagavad Gita, it says you're entitled, um, to your efforts, but not the fruit of your efforts. You're entitled to plant that tree, but you're not necessarily entitled to the shade. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Like the tree might not even like bear leaves. Who knows, you know, right, or it might right. be the the wrong t- kind of tree for this climate. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it does my heart good to see the younger generations. Uh, again, I'm old, uh, but the, the younger generations taking up this mantle of social justice and totally. that it's so important to them. Yeah. And I've, I've known that for a long time when I was... Uh, a junior senior in college, I um, went with Greenpeace. Greenpeace uh, paid for 200 college students to go to the UN um, Climate Justice Accords in The Hague that year. Um, so it was like the seventh meeting on climate climate justice. And they did that knowing that young people have always led the way in social mm-hmm. progress. 
Yeah. And and so I've known that, you know, even if I as I've aged out of being a young person, um, but continually looking back, right, like young, young kids in, in so many schools have such expanded notions of, of gender and sexuality. Yeah. Um, uh, or, yeah, even like their school security as connected to defunding the police. They, their youth is visionary. It's just like mm-hmm. by necessity. And then as we age, we gain wisdom, right? From like, we've been working on this shit for for, <laughs> for years. And so, and we need each other, right? Like the, we need the energy and the passion and the vision of youth. And then we need the wisdom of the older generations um, yeah. together to yeah. move us forward. Yeah. It's always about balance, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Well, I, I know that we are getting close to the end of our time. So uh, I wanted to ask you uh, two final questions. Uh, one is, what do you have coming up? What are you working on next? I mean, I'm continuing to teach. Um, the yoga and social justice world is kind of blowing up in this moment. There's, you know, teacher trainings led by Susanna Barkataki and Michelle Cassandra Johnson at the like center communities of color and queer folks. Um, so, you know, those are comrades and they'll work. Um, so I guess I want to answer that question by not taking it personally, but, but expanding it to, you know, all of us doing the, the, the work. Um, uh, I think we're, we're inviting, um, yoga communities to decenter asana and um, invoke the entirety of the practice. We're insisting on social justice as inherent to the, to the practice. Um, and to create space for that, you know, sometimes we're creating new spaces, new retreat center, new trainings, new classes, you know, uh, practicing online gives us, can give us a lot of freedom um, as, as, uh, as well as inventing new places to, to practice with physically. Um, I lead mentorships uh, for for yoga teachers. I offer online classes. Um, I teach in various trainings. Um, and then the newest area of my work is uh, prenatal and postnatal yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've been teaching prenatal yoga for the last um, four months. And now those folks that were pregnant are having their kids. And so now I'm starting to teach postnatal and baby and me yoga. Um, which is really fun to um, to expand who's included in those spaces and um, to really center queer and trans folks in those spaces that often we just we have to fight for space or endure countless microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I want you know the birth work world to eventually make space for all of us that are that are building families and whatever formations and however we got to do it. But um, for the moment, um, classes like that um, are needed. So I'm excited to, you know, do more work in the birth work world, which also includes doing trainings for birth workers and prenatal yoga teachers around LGBT inclusion. Okay, wonderful. And the last question, and I'm going to add to this a little bit, is I wanted to ask, uh, where can people go to find out more about you and your work, but also invite if there are any of these other organizations that are focused on social justice and whatnot, if you want to include those too, that'd be oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, my website is jacobybeller.net and I'm on social um, with my, just by my name. Um, I'd also recommend folks check out Michelle Cassandra Johnson, Susanna Barkataki, Accessible Yoga, um, as just a few, um, Black Yoga Teachers Association as well. Um, and just looking into like, who are the leaders, who are the people that are leading trainings um, uh, or mentors in those, um, with those leaders, um, because there's, by now there's hundreds of us doing this work. It used to be like a dozen, and now there's so many of us doing this work. So um, I invite you to find your doorway in. Yeah, wonderful. And we need, you know, I always say this is an all hands on deck moment. Yeah, you know, we, we need everyone participating however they can show up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, thank you so much for your time, Jacoby. It was an absolute delight to speak with you. And I am so grateful for the work that you're doing. Wow. Thank you, Nick. And that's a wrap on episode 31 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a short but positive review. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.